welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. The War Bunker is currently packed up and moving to an undisclosed secret location in the Lone Star State, so today we're bringing you a rebroadcast of a Civil War showdown fit for the end of summer. Last August, we pit two essential coming-of-age pictures against one another to determine which is essentialier. Boy, do we get ourselves in a serious pickle that time. Pitting Rob Reiner's 1986 classic Stand By Me against one of the ultimate summer movies for any child of the 90s, The Sandlot. It was a steaming hot, no-holds-barred Civil War debate. So, without further ado, let the war begin. With the coolest guys in the neighborhood, they've got the look. Wendy Peppercorn. Wow. The girls. They've got the moves. <laughs> they've got the rap. Blockhead. Geek. Jerk. Idiot. Moron. You bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it. You play ball like a girl. Something else has got their ball. That wasn't my ball! Dad's father gave it to him. Babe Ruth signed that ball. Babe Ruth! We gotta get that ball back. You got any bright ideas? Initiate retrieval section number one. Power connect. Come on, help me, it's heavy. Now. Fire, fire! As the summer movie season comes to a close, I felt there was no better way to wash off the shame of this endless summer bummer than to look back at a couple feel-good summer classics and force them to fight each other, until only one is standing as the essentialist coming-of-age summer film. First up to the plate, we've got Smalls, Ham, Squints, Yeah Yeah, and the rest of the Sandlot gang, led by Benny the Jet Rodriguez. In 1993, writer-director David Mickey Evans gave a generation of kids a nostalgia-fueled look at the greatest summer any boy could ever dream of. There were endless games of baseball, late-night sleepovers in a frickin' treehouse, pervin' a dish on Wendy Peppercorn, urban legends, children chewing tobacco, and, of course, The Pickle. The Sandlot is one of those movies I don't even remember seeing for the first time. It's just always been there playing at sleepovers or after school or during school on an inside day of recess. Everyone I knew growing up quoted it constantly, to the point that lines from the movie were no longer from the Sandlot. They were just part of our daily lexicon. So naturally, my biggest fear going into this discussion was the ability to judge it objectively. So Jake, that's where I'd like to begin this review. How much did childhood nostalgia factor into your viewing experience of the film this time around? And... What, if anything, did you discover watching The Sandlot for the first time as a grown-ass man? Well, that's a that's a really tough question because this is also – I mean, I grew up playing baseball. It was the only sport I played. It was the only thing I watched. Um, I didn't really even start watching football seriously until I was in high school. So this was like the movie for me growing up. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to separate it from nostalgia. It is purely a nostalgia flick for me. It's It's – and look, I really liked it. I I really liked you, it this you time. You really I liked it, it this time around. Yeah. Um. I I mean, it it's gonna be a a tough fight against Stand by Me, but it it, it I do I enjoy it. Uh, one of the things I liked about it was how it, it's almost unfocused in a way that really like reminds me of Summers as a kid. In mm-hmm. that it's a it didn't have a huge plot until like 
45 minutes into the movie when they lost the baseball. Yeah. And that's exactly sort of my, my observation this time around, because I'd never really been aware of it more, you know, structurally or whatever as, as a kid, um, this time around, I was amazed at how much it just, it just sort of feels like a lot of these sort of episodic moments. Um, but then, I mean, it's probably at least 45 minutes to an hour before they get into the, the pickle. The biggest um, pickle even, any of us had ever seen. Yeah. There's <laughs> a very Casey Kasem. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of pickle talk in this movie. Oh um, yeah. Constantly. I think if you, if, if, if you did like a, a word cloud of this movie, it, it's n- <laughs> names for Babe Ruth and pickle. That's the only thing they say in this movie. <laughs> and, and a lot of, uh, you know, and a lot of insults at each other. And at that, at that other baseball team, a lot of really good insults. Chris, you um, run you run a podcast like a girl. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Actually, that's actually how the other kids should respond. He's like, "Thank you." Yeah, thank yeah. You. Uh, but no. So when when they get to that pickle part, that's you know that was my favorite part as a kid, and it was still like I think the best part of the movie. You know that from the sort of first because they're they're sort of iterating. You know, the, the, the mm-hmm. first time they try, it's, it's sort of the, um, the super lo-fi, you know, just the stick and then they, they iterate up and up and, you know, they're, it's, it's like they're developing, you know, the plan and they get into the, uh, you know, they, they try throwing a man, you know, over and then they, uh, it's, you know, it's all in engineering ingenuity. And then like, so basically from that through to Benny's big run is just it's so much fun. It is. It's, and I was going to my expectation was I remember it being this huge epic thing as a kid and going mm-hmm. into it. I was prepared for it to be not that it's still it still really, really works. Yeah. It really and, and works. I think it ca- it captures that sort of imagination of childhood where I mean, because clearly like kids aren't going to be able to build this giant erector set or or the, you know, the, the whole pulley system that that drops. Um, is it squints that I can't, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The, yeah. The, goes you know, over. They, yeah. Yeah. They, they drop, they drop. Yeah. Yeah. Down. Like all that, like kids aren't going to be able to do that, but that's like, as a kid, that's why it's the coolest thing. Like a, they have a treehouse where they can hang out and mm-hmm. B they're like building these things and doing, you know, like, um, you know, cause it, particularly like in the summertime as a kid, you have a lot of time on your hands and you would get, I, I don't, well, I mean, I can't speak for you, but like me as a kid, we would get these grand ideas and we'd be like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to like, we're going to start. I can remember like we were, me and my friends growing up, we were always really about bikes and biking. Mm-hmm. And so we decided one summer that we were going to do like this, uh, like daredevil grew, like we were going to do like bike tricks and stuff. And we spent, you know, a good part, or at least in my mind, a good part of the summer, uh, you know, talking about it, but then never, you know, we never learned any bike tricks other than like, maybe somebody had a ramp and we would jump a curb or something. Uh, but this is like, you know, the, the sort of childhood, um, dream being lived out. And that's, what's great about it. It is like a belief. It's funny because while I would say Stand By Me is like a more realistic film, like The Sandlot resonates more with the childhood I had um, uh-huh. in that it's it's just like neighborhood kids getting together and playing baseball and then doing things that seemed so huge to them at the time, like trying to get a ball back. And it, and it like right. it elevates that childhood summer thing to this grandiose, 
movie. And as a kid, when you watch it, it's like your life amplified. Right. And, 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 and that's, was, and that's it, exactly like you wanted, you wanted to be one of the members of this team. Right. As a kid. And, and the characters are, or it's not like they're super well-defined with backstory and all that, but they were so iconic to us as kids. We, we knew. Yeah. Yeah. And smalls and squints. And, and I mean, it, right. It was, and, and the nicknames, you know, the nicknames function as a shorthand for for that as well. You know, you've got a little bit of like even the fact that Ham, you know, he's the fat kid mm-hmm. and, you know, Squint's obviously the one with the with the glasses, that sort of thing. Like it, it functions to a point where it's like the kids aren't maybe fully defined, but it's enough that you can kind of and there's and there's enough to choose from that you can kind of be like, oh, yeah, I kind of I kind of know that kid and I kind of know that kid. And it, you know, it feels like a, a group of friends. You, you knew each of the kids and they were a point of reference for you as a kid Mm -hmm. and and they were just fun characters to me this is more like a our gang little rascals uh yeah yeah spiritual successor type thing but a a baseball movie okay so um we we have been talking a lot about you know the nostalgic factor of it and i i think that is something that i'm not going to be able to divorce myself from completely um just because you know like i've said i i watched it so much as a kid that it's just sort of there are so many things ingrained in me, even like you're killing me smalls. Like there are like a lot of times I totally forget that that is taken from this movie. You know, it's just, it's just something that even still today, like I say, my friends say like, it's just, it's just a thing that you, you know, it's so ingrained in, um, like I I said, in in our lexicon. I've never eaten a s'more without saying, how can I have s'more? I haven't had when I I haven't had any yet. So that's, that's actually, that's a perfect example. That's another one. Uh, so Joy Dale, who we had on the the show last episode, uh, he says that every time. And I had forgotten it was from Sandlot until rewatching this time, because it's just like, once again, it's one of those things that just always comes up. Um, to me, this is like the best kids live action movie and watching it as an adult, I can see some things that, you know, there are some issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, that's, that's what I sort of what I wanted to get into is like, so with, you know, with, we've been talking about the nostalgia a lot, but from a more, you know, adult critical standpoint, um, I did want to talk about if, if there's anything that sticks out to you, um, what are the, the shortcomings, if any, in this movie? I don't even I don't even want to take pot shots at it. I like it that much. Um <laughs> I Okay, so I don't know. I I rented it on Amazon. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it was the transfer I had or what, but a lot of the shots, especially indoor at um at Smalls's house um were yeah. sh- shot with it seemed like a really weird lens choice and super like the top and bottom of the frames were way out of focus and and they seemed distorted the characters to some extent, kind of yeah. tall and skinny. I don't know what that was about. I, I wanted it to be something wrong with the transfer because I didn't want it to be these shots look really bad. So I think I, I so I watched a I watched the Blu-ray of it and it's and I, I will say like the Blu-ray. It's not I mean, it's not like this movie is like the most beautiful movie ever. It's a pretty like standard 90s movie. And what I mean by that is it's, you know, color looks like just straight out of the film, you know, processing color. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that sort of thing. But there, I, those were very visible on, on this Blu-ray as well. And it's, it's one of those things that I feel like is just a, it's a poor, uh, creative choice from, yeah. uh, I, and 
it's I don't even know exactly what it's trying to accomplish because it's it's sort of these fuzzy edges of of the frame to almost I guess try to make it feel a little more nostalgic. But you're right. Like the only place that I really noticed it um, was was in Small's house as well, which is really some of the least nostalgic moments. You know, you've got you've got him trying to identify with his stepdad, which I think is another thing that for me is a little underdeveloped for what they try to pull off with this is, yeah, is he, sort of, he is, he is barely present in the movie. Uh, well, it, and, he's barely present. And in a way that as a kid, like I actually remember him being sort of an awful, awful father watching this time around. It, it seemed more like, well, he doesn't exactly know how to relate to the kid, but he also doesn't like when smalls asks him to play catch. He doesn't just flat out say, no, I'm not, I'm not playing catch with you. You're not my son. Like he tries to dedicate the time to him and he's not super pissed off when he finds out about the, the ball. So it's, it's a weird, like they could have, I felt like they could have developed that just a little more. They could have, but I think as a kid, not having to sit through, any of the you know grown up drama stuff probably helped this yeah. movie because yeah, there was no like. Well, but then at that point, at at that point, he is just a like the stepdad um, who I think we should say played by Dennis Leary. I was gonna um, say was was he really bad or did we also learn who Dennis Leary was later in life <laughs> and just tie those things together? That, that could that could be that could be fair. He, but I, he no, just looks mo- like Dennis Leary because it's him, and, uh-huh, and uh-huh. so it seems like he should be singing the asshole song. I yeah. mean. I don't know. <laughs> that's that. That's a fair question. But no, um, I like a, as a kid, I always remember, you know, um, thinking he was just a little, a little, a little mean, a little mean. Um, and and here it just seems like he's just not in the movie too much. So maybe we really thought like... he was a little mean because as a kid, you want to go and touch, you know, whatever awesome stuff your dad has in his room. And that that yeah. guy was like, no, don't come and touch my baseball. And and as kids, we took that as that's being ridiculous. And as adults, we're like, it's a Babe Ruth baseball. Stay away. Yeah. Well, did you notice how like similar his little man cave was to James Earl Jones's man cave? They were a lot alike. They were. uh, I mean, like the wood walls, the pennants on the walls. Like uh it was I I don't know if that is a. If if that's just you know or Hollywood or did thing, they have the there, same room was, and they did different set decoration but barely different set decoration that could that could be as well that really could be but it, it was just such a weird like because it wasn't it didn't even seem like and once again they don't develop him that much but it doesn't even seem like Dennis Leary spends too much time in there like it's just sort of like a closed door with things Spe- speaking dust. of James Earl Jones man he is great. He's great in this still. He was great as a kid. He was like huge, larger than life, iconic. Like I almost knew him more from that than anything else. And he's he's just really good. He nails that role. No, yeah, I, I 100% agree. And watching it this time, I realized I've always in the back of my mind sort of felt that James Earl Jones is a blind man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's 100% because of this movie, but I couldn't have told you that without rewatching it. I know time. I know James Earl Jones uh, as a kid from Field of Dreams, which is another very good baseball oh, yeah. movie. Yeah. And uh, in my head, he is blind in Field of Dreams, which now I am questioning as well if that was the case same he is blind in my head and feel the dream <laughs> we're gonna have to research this uh because yeah like if if he is blind in that movie then that that actually makes it a little easier to for some reason in the like we feel the dreams is eight late 80s right yeah um, but in, that, in that like time span 
88 or 89. Yeah. Um, but in that time span, he may have been typecast as a, as a blind baseball, old baseball player. <laughs> Do you have anything else that you want to want to get into anything specifically that you wanted to talk about with this or are you yes i want i want to say the the emotional like this movie is nostalgic for us like watching it but at Uh the time i I think it was a nostalgic made as a nostalgic movie nostalgia for summers as a kid nostalgia for Mm -hmm. you know the i guess it was probably the 60s i think it was 62 it said on that cake i think i thought it was 63 Three. No, no, no. I think I think you're right. I'm thinking of something something else that we'll get to later. And and um, but I, I think the best it does at nostalgia is probably the scene where they play the night game. That is that mm. is I think where it works yeah. the best for me. Um, and it's and it's done in sort of a magical realism kind of thing because there's not that many fireworks in the sky. It's special mm-hmm. effects, all that stuff. But it is just like. To me, that scene probably works the best to achieve that nostalgic thing. That yeah, well, they're going and, for. and that speaks also to the uh, it speaks to the whole thing of this all being sort of perpetrated from the vantage point of the kids, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the way that and they do this actually a bit with um, the baseball in general. Um, but they'll do, you know, sort of these these buttery, smooth, overcrank shots. Uh, mixed in, you know, like there's several times when Benny comes across the plate and tags home mm-hmm. where you see this, you know, it's, it's probably shot at, um, you know, 120 frames per second or mm-hmm. something. So, uh, a, a lot, a lot faster than your normal 24 frames a second. And it's just sort of this buttery smoothness. Uh, and, and they do a lot of that in, in that night baseball scene, which is just like a, that is the perfect, like from like a, a young boy's perspective, like from my perspective as a young boy was like just a, a perfect piece of like, I would love to play that game. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, and it, it's, it's, and it's the type of game that like you, you want to go on forever because I don't know if you ever played, uh, you know, like neighborhood baseball where you just get friends together and play wiffle ball or whatever. But there was always that, like, as, as it got late in the evening, you know, like eight, eight thirty, and the sun starts to go down, you're like fighting against, this, you know, the, the loss of light and the like still trying to play as you can't even see the ball coming. Yes. Um, and, and so yeah, it, for it, sure. it, like, it counters that. Yeah. And it, it just that really, really worked. And I, I feel like um, that working as it should have was really good. I, I the scene at the end where he steals home really works for me too. I didn't think it would work as an adult and it's, it still works for me. It, it really mm-hmm. is. It, it is surprisingly good for what it is. It should be a forgettable kids movie and in no way is it. Yeah. And you know, I, I looked at the, the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and it's not like it's, I think it had like a 58%. So it's not like, it, it's not like hook where it was totally panned, <laughs> but uh, no pun intended there. But um, it, it wasn't, loved but even like i mean roger ebert gave it three out of four stars um so it it still had its uh had its champions and i mean his basic you know view of it is it's not you know it's not doing anything that is uh cinematically incredible or inventive but it's just a really good sort of piece of americana nostalgia um, done executed well executed without you know without many flaws it's not it's not reaching for the stars but it is uh very successful at what it you know sets out to do 
Yeah, it, and and the script is probably the strongest part of it, mm-hmm. and and the language that is used is really good in a way that makes it enjoyable to watch things that would be routine otherwise. I mean, it's, so I. I, 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 I like that you brought up the script. We, we need to move on to, uh, to Stand By Me in a second. But I would like to point out that uh, this script, which was uh, written by the director, uh, David Mickey Evans, he have – you, have you looked at his IMDb page? At, no, because you, know, you he, forbid me from doing it because you wanted to okay. hear my reaction. Yeah, so I, I do want to hear your reaction to this. So, well, tell me, uh, what, what do you know about uh, David M. Evans? Nothing. But judging by this movie, if he didn't direct a Beethoven sequel, I'll eat my hat. I'll eat a small size hat. (laughs) How do you like where where do you where does that come from? How do you I don't know. I have but just just okay from the time period that it happened in and Uh the the way some of the sound effects are used in this movie that is just very, very (laughs) 90s. And there were so many Beethoven sequels. And if he if his agent couldn't get him the job directing a Beethoven sequel, I feel like he needed to be fired. (laughs) So he his agent did get him a job directing a Beethoven sequel, directing two of them, actually. Are you Um, serious? I I am serious. He didn't write (laughs) them, but he directed Beethoven's third and Beethoven's fourth um, back to back in 2001 and 2002. There was just no way he didn't. There was no yeah, way he didn't. Exactly. And he, I mean, he's done a few other, like, following the Sandlot. His next movie was Ed, that weird movie oh. with Matt LeBlanc and a pitching chimpanzee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he, he wrote and directed a, a Sandlot sequel, which I haven't seen, don't don't want to see. But here's here's the topper for me. Here's the thing that, like, made me actually reconsider this entire film after watching it. Um, he wrote and directed Ace Ventura, Pet Detective Jr., Junior? I don't, I don't know if you're Junior, you're not aware of this? Okay, this is like straight to video, like very kiddie kid movie where uh Ace Ventura, you know, they acknowledge that Ace Ventura had sex and had a child that looked and acted exactly like him. And did did they get the same actor from that movie to play the baby mask in that uh did they make a sequel to Yeah, they did make a sequel to the mask where the mask was like a baby, right? Uh, yeah, Am I yeah, making they, that up? They did. Oh. But no, this, this uh, Ace Ventura Jr. and this was Josh from, uh, what's a Disney show, Josh and... Dr- Drake, Drake and uh, Josh. Isn't that a... Yes. I think it was a Nickelodeon I, show, but yeah. Was it Nickelodeon? I think I think that's right. Otherwise, it's just like another another chubby kid that, that looked exactly the same. Um, anyway, okay, we're getting way off topic. So I'm going to say, let's let's close the book on The Sandlot for now. We'll come back when we're, we're uh, you know, doing the head-to-head. But now let's move into our review of Stand By Me. It's not the secret knock. I forget the secret knock. Let me in. Run. Come on, you guys, open up. Oh, man, you guys are not going to believe this. This is so boss. Oh, man, wait do you hear this. Wait do you hear this. You won't believe it. It's unbelievable. Let me catch my breath. I ran all the way from my house. I ran all the way home. You are caught. You guys listen to me. This is boss. Come on. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Forget it. I don't have to tell you enough. Hold on, you guys. Hold on. What is it, man? Okay, great. You won't believe this. Sincerely. I ran all the way home. Screw you guys. Forget it. What is it? Can you guys camp out tonight? I mean, if you tell your folks we're going to tent out my backfield? Yeah, I think so. Except my dad's kind of on a mean streak. You know, he's been drinking a lot lately. You got you, man. Sincerely, you won't believe this. Can you, Cordy? Yeah, probably. So what are you pissing and moaning about, Verno? I knock. What? 
You liar, you ain't got no pad hand. You didn't deal with yourself no pad hand. Make your draw, shitty. You guys wanna go see a dead body? So, Stand By Me is sort of the yin to the Sandlot's yang. Both share a similar structure and many complementary themes, but Stand By Me, based on Stephen King's novella The Body, is a boyhood summer adventure that hones in on the vulnerability of childhood and explores the loss of innocence. If The Sandlot presents the world through the diffused eyes of a kid, Stand By Me looks back on childhood from the clear-eyed, road-tested vantage point of an adult. As I've said, The Sandlot's the type of movie you see everywhere and all the time as a kid, while Stand By Me is the kind of film you catch for the first time at the behest of your best friend's older brother. So, Jake, we've discussed The Sandlot and the sacred pedestal of nostalgia many of our generation place it on. So, in your opinion, does Stand By Me even stand a chance in this battle? And also, what the hell is Goofy? (laughs) Well, that... This is one of the good questions that that movie. What is Goofy? No, no. Uh, so I think I think I think Stand by Me definitely stands a chance in this. I, I have seen it before uh, once or twice, and it's another one that was on TV a lot growing up for me. Um, I know my dad really liked it. Uh, Stand Stand by Me is so good that I've spent ten years convinced it was one of the better Steven Spielberg films. <laughs> like like watching it this time when it came up and it was like Rob Ryan was like, oh yeah. Rob Reiner does make really good movies. Yeah. Like, he's super underrated, especially his stuff around that time. Well, and it does it does fall right in line with especially what you were getting from Spielberg in, you know, in the 80s with, um, you know, because these these kids and there's there's fewer kids here than you have in the Sandlot. So you're actually able to, like, kind of hone in on them as characters a little more. But they are all so good. You know, Will Whedon, Jerry O'Connell, uh, River Phoenix. Um, who am I leaving out? Uh, Corey, Corey Feldman. Um, they're, they're all fantastic and they're all well-rounded. I mean, I think part of this comes from the fact that, you know, it's, it's, these are well-written characters to begin with coming from uh, a Stephen King novella, but, um, Reiner directs them in a way that is very Spielbergian. It feels very natural. He, he, he gets great performances out of all of them. Jerry O'Connell in particular is sincerely he's really good chris sincerely he's <laughs> exactly great. exactly he and, and he has he really does have a sincerity to him the whole time you know and and he's you know i i mentioned with with the kids in the sandlot um they all seem like relatable you know characters that you knew in in some fashion um i think the kids here even more so and probably because they're fleshed out more but like everyone had a kid in their gang. You may, you know, I, I think at, at times I was the kid in, in the group who was sort of that Jerry O'Connell character. Vern, I think is his name where, you know, he's just like sort of the, he's sort of the happy go lucky. Just like he's, he's happy to be there and have, have fun. And, and, you know, the kids, the kids, uh, sort of riff on him a bit, like when they don't let him in the treehouse uh, because he doesn't know the knock, but it's not, you know, they're not bullying him. They're still, you know, they're still his friends. They still got his back. Right, um, and I love how so, how his character's like. I think we should stick to the tracks, guys. Oh, we should. Uh-huh. I told you we should have stuck. It's just he is he is really really he's a really real character. Also, yeah. all four of these kids are such good actors that there's not a single child actor in the stand lot in in the stand lot who can stand who who can hold a jockstrap up to any of these guys. <laughs> I mean, Ham yeah. was really good. I I probably point to him as the best actor from the Sandlot. 
Well, and but he's and I, I can't think of that kid's name, but that's sort of the character that he always played in everything. You know, he's in the big green. He was in um, was he in heavyweights? I, I was going to say if he wasn't in heavyweights in my mind, he should have been somebody. Somebody messed up when they didn't cast him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was he I felt like he was sort of the the playing the character that he always played, but he played it very well. Yeah, the, these these four people did really good. And and River Phoenix in particular. God, oh he gosh. was great, great, great actor. Just very, I mean, that, that scene when it's him and, and Gordy played by um, Will Whedon and they're, I think it's, are they, are they standing watch? Like the other boys are asleep and they sort of have a heart to heart and he starts to break down is just mm-hmm. really, I mean, really powerful stuff, really. And to come from a kid who, I don't know what age they were at this time. I think they were ranging. I think Jerry O'Connell was the youngest. I think I want to say he was like 11 and River Phoenix is, you know, somewhere maybe he's 14, 13, 14, something like that. But like just a really amazing, emotional, believable performance there. Yeah, all around. And and the way that uh, River Phoenix's character kind of fathers um, or acts like a father figure or a mother, whatever you want to say, a parent Mm -hmm. to um, to Will Wheaton's character is just. Well, to all of them, really, he's sort of he is sort of the glowing light of encouragement for for all the kids. Yeah, it's it was really good. Also, I I know I texted you this when I was done watching, uh, but when the credits came on and it said, uh, Will Wheaton, I didn't realize that was him at all. I've never made that connection in my mind. And so I texted you, I said, I think Will Wheaton and Jerry O'Connell must've swapped fortune cookies on accident. (laughs) Okay. So that's where that came from. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, cause I had no clue. And if you, if you just show pictures of those four kids, you, you might not, you might not like as as kids and adults, you might not you know might might not pick the right people. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, I mean, I think Jerry O'Connell is also haunted by you know I, I he's kind of known just as the fat kid from Stand by Me as well. You know, yeah. Um, uh, but there's in my mind, Jerry O'Connell is is two two characters. He is Vern in this, and then he is Cush in uh, <laughs> Jerry Maguire. The, yes. Uh, the yeah. the the uh, I think quarterback that that everyone's after in the draft. Kushlash, yeah, and and Kushlash, Kushlash, <laughs> Kushlash, Okay, sorry. And I, I know Will Wheaton was on Star Trek, but there seems to be no like in between pictures of uh-huh. Will Wheaton as a child and Will Wheaton as an adult in my head. Right, like right, like he just goes well, right into full Will. Wheaton. I Will Wheaton in my mind is younger than I mean because this movie came out the year I was born. Um, so he's he's you know quite a bit older than than we are and in my mind he's younger than that like it's amazing that he was a you know fully developing into adolescence yeah um, i would have guessed he was 35 maybe yeah yeah that, maybe. that's exactly where i would probably place him you know like older older than us but not terribly older i was trying to figure out if these kids were all supposed to be in the same grade in the movie i guess it doesn't matter they just know each other but, well, no, they. Uh, I think they are because they they mention that they are going. I think to junior high. The fall. That's like, right. This is and this is that. That's another thing. I love. I love the structure of the story. This is the end of the summer. You know, it is. They they make it back on Labor Day, um, and they're they're going to go off to high school and or junior high. And uh, one of the big conflicts with um, with Gordo or Gordy, played by uh, Will Whedon, is that. He's afraid that he's never going to see these kids again because um, he's going to go or maybe. No, I think it's Chris is afraid that uh, they're never going to see him again because 
Gordy's going to go off to, you know, the specialized class and they're all going to be stuck in shop or right. some sort of vocational classes and they're, they're going to split there. And, and that's another thing that I like is there's not, even though uh, Chris is the river Phoenix character is sort of the leader of the group. Um, he still has his own vulnerabilities. They all, they all sort of um, work together as their own team in a way to, um, you know, to build each other up and to like, I, I mean, I don't know. I love, I love that final line on that old, old, old ass computer. Um, that's what is it that, that Dreyfus types out? I, I don't think anybody of. has, I, I don't think I've ever had, uh, friends like I had when I was 12 year old, 12 years old. And then it Jesus, says, uh, what does anyone? Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, and, and it's that, so, that's so powerful. Yeah. It, it's really good. And it's so, like, sad and sobering to, when he t- mm-hmm. tells the story about, you know, going into the fast food place or wherever he was during the robbery. And yeah, all. Chris, Chris getting shot. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a – man, it's, it's, it's really sad. Well, but and that, it that's works. one of those moments that I feel like might not – in another movie might have felt like it was unearned because you see it. Yeah. Like, you see him looking at the headline up front. Um, but because, because the kids sell it, because that's the only, you know, you only know him as the character as a kid, but because the kids sell it, you, you totally like hook, line and sinker by that gut wrencher when it comes back around at the end and he tells the story about it. And it it is a gut wrencher because you see him have such a, a sad, not a sad childhood. They, they were happy, but it was obviously a rough childhood that they had mm-hmm. and with, you know, absent father figures and all this other stuff. And he grows up and he makes good and you would expect it to have an ending where it's like, and we all grew up and we're super happy and we saw each other again or we never saw whatever it is. But yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have that like squeaky clean and, and, you know, Sandlot doesn't either. I'm, and I, I think we should applaud it for that. Like Sandlot could easily be like, oh yeah. And then, and then we stayed in touch, but no, it's, it's sort of, we all went our separate ways, but we, we still remember, um, yeah, you know, we still remember. And there, there is like a tragedy to the way, you know, he says basically him and Chris stayed, um, stayed together as, as friends. And then, you know, in adulthood drifted off, but then uh Vern and I forget what is what is Corey Feldman's name in this I I don't um, remember you know they 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 sort of part ways and become faces they just they just see in the hall um let's Corey Feldman we haven't talked about him really at all he's really good in this and it, it might be it might be a sense of he's sort of like ham where I'm not sure how much he's playing a character outside of his own personality but there's a lot of you know vulnerability and damaged goods here that he uh, he pulls and, and the up way just with, the way he says my dad stormed the beaches at Normandy it's yeah. you can tell with that and everything yeah, and, else well, he's revealed about his dad that that's what he kind of holds on to. How good is that reveal as well? When because initially he's just you know he seems like the type of kid who you know adolescent kid obsessed with you know like military stuff and mm-hmm. that was that was another thing that me and my friends would do you know in the summer we'd go play military. Um, and then you find out later that, you know, the reason he's got the dog tags and everything is because his, his father was at storm the beaches in Normandy and, and he kind of looks up to him as an idol, even if, um, you know, other people in the community see him as crazy or abusive or, or whatever. Um, there, there's such a vulnerability and a sensitivity to the way that, uh, Reiner is able and, and Stephen King, I think we should you know, probably give credit yes. to as well, uh, are able to develop that character fully. 
and and the way that Feldman pulls it off. It's it's fantastic. Yes, and, and this movie. Another thing about Reiner and Stephen King. Um, the, so the scene where um, Will Whedon's character, whose name I can't think of right now, uh, uh, was sitting on the railroad tracks and the deer comes up and it just runs away. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So I, I actually had that circled in my notes. I wanted to talk that. So like easily my favorite part of this movie. One of my, I mean, just beautiful and and delicate and like not. It's not overdone. It's not too flashy. Yeah, so good. What? Sorry. What? What were you going to say about it? I was going to say it was great, and it also. But uh, to since we're comparing it to the Sandlot, it also had that um, meandering feeling a little bit of like actual summers as a kid. Mm, you know how we mm-hmm. talked about like not everything in the movie um, went somewhere. You know, yeah, and I know yeah. that that scene represented something in this movie and the scene in, in the Sandlot didn't really, but it, it still it had that summer, that summers as a kid feeling. Lot, yeah. Lots of stuff happened and it didn't all go anywhere. It, it's really good. And yeah, that prob- probably is my favorite moment. So that actually brings up another you mentioning that it's it's sort of that meandering bit brings up another thing that I wanted to talk. I think we would be remiss if we don't talk about uh, the Revenge of Lardass. And the, oh. I mean, it's, it's sort of a Mikey on a Gita scene, which is, you know, the phrase that we've coined here on the show where it's a scene that doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere or do anything per se. Um, but it still functions as something thematic to the movie or, or whatnot. And, and it's so, it's so well constructed as a story. Like it's a story that you would believe that a kid of, um, of his age could actually, you know, construct and tell. So it's not. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh, he wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Um, you know, it's a small self-contained story, but it's really good. And then the way that it's shot is just fantastic. Uh, yes, it, it's shot different than the other the rest of the film. And it almost felt like a like Kubrick shot it or something. It was it's I don't know why I thought that when I was watching it, something maybe that's the way the shots were framed. Uh-huh. But that's it, that's really interesting. Like it, it does almost have that when Kubrick gets a little uh, a little, you know, when he pulls out a wide angle in Strange Love or something like that. And he's, mm-hmm. he's really like playing, playing into the humor of that's the hmm. I'm going to have to go back and actually rewatch with that that in mind, because I can, you know, sort of in the ether, make that connection in my mind. But. Um, yeah, next time I yeah, watch it, I'm going to... Gonna... It, it was a really weird pull, but just halfway in, I was like, what is this reminding me of? And uh-huh. and that's what I came up with. But the, the one question I have about that scene, um, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this. Did did Lardas, did Lardas have to pay to get into the competition? <laughs> oh, God. There's so many. <laughs> there are so many good... Like and it's not necessarily quotable, quotable <laughs> lines. Like like did Lardas have to pay to get in the competition? Um, isn't something that I'm going to say every day. But there are so many well constructed lines, and you know I think part of that's got to be Stephen King for yes. sure. Yes, and, and um, but that did such a good job of making the characters real because that is it. Yeah. Can, it conveyed so much. It conveyed well, the, way, the way Vern delivers it too is perfect because it's not. Like he's he's legitimately concerned. You can see the wheels turning in his head or he wasn't totally paying attention to everything because he was wondering, like he's trying to place himself in Lardass's shoes and he would be down for doing this, but only if he didn't have to pay to do it. Right. It's and it's great. It just shows it's 
it really shows each of the characters had their own brain or it was written mm-hmm. in a way that they really did. And he's thinking something different than everybody else. They're not exactly. all. The, it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about Kiefer Sutherland's character yet either, which is something oh, I want okay. to bring up. Yeah. Let's, let's touch briefly on Kiefer Sutherland and John Cusack. Yes. They both did. Well, Reiner did a great job with every, everybody in this movie. Yeah. Absolutely. But John but, Cusack is, well, I, let's circle back around to Kiefer Sutherland because I think we're going to have more maybe to say about him. Yeah. But Cusack, one, like this is maybe my favorite Cusack performance. I'm not real big on Cusack. He is incredible in this. So good as like you buy him as that, uh, as that older brother, that very understanding older brother, the older brother that you sort of want every, yeah. like every young boy wants. He he did um, great. Gross Point Blank is my favorite Cusack, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it. You should. I, I haven't. Uh, you've recommended it to me for years now, years yeah, and years now. This is um, a very, um, for, for as little screen time as he has, he does loom over a lot of the movie. He does. So, and, and that's, I mean, I don't know where we put the, it's probably all involved, but the, he's the sort of character that could in another movie that's not executed nearly as well be very um, just unnecessary or very hackneyed. Mm-hmm. And um, the, he's for somehow the, you know, they, they use him just enough so that he's, he's still sort of a ghost. And that's ultimately, you know, that's sort of the thing that's driving Gordy is, you know, he says that he needed to see the body and you've got to think that that has something to do with his brother's death. Um, yes. Uh, but Cusack is in the few scenes that he's in, he gives you just enough to really buy him, really buy him as a character. And it doesn't just feel like it. He doesn't feel like just a thing that pushes and propels the kids forward. Right. Um, which ultimately is what what that character is. But it feels organic. Yeah. And, and uh, it does feel like the dad character would like him. But this dad character is as awful as I remember the dad character in the Sandlot being. Yeah, maybe maybe even worse. He's and and I mean, I, all I don't of the, know. he's the only one that we see, but they're all they're all kind of kind of shitty dads. Yeah, they're they, it's yeah. Um, Kiefer Sutherland is yes. as mean of a bully as you could want. Man, he is. So I I was watching a little featurette afterwards on the DVD, and Jerry O'Connell was saying that you know he was he was fine with everything. The one person that he like wasn't fine with was Kiefer Sutherland legitimately scared him um, and, and, and scared all the kids. So uh, that's kind of fantastic that he was able to really embody that uh, for them. You know, I don't think, I don't think he was like totally method, like pulling knives on him and stuff, but um, to, to the point where, you know, they, they just didn't want to cross him um, on, uh, on set. And, and, you know, that, that also plays into exactly, you know, the age gap, there because they're not he's not that much older him and his friends aren't that much older right than um their gang but it is that like huge jump in a few years where you go from being you know this sort of middle school adolescent to a teenager um yeah and they're, and they're I, just I, on the cusp of that i thought the writing was so good to make some of them brothers with the kids because it's a small town mm-hmm. but they're still Eyeball. a gang and they still kind of want to clash with with each other and it feels like a legitimate threat for the characters yeah exactly well and and i i I think that's sutherland bringing the it to the role yeah well and and that showdown you know around the body is 
another thing that could have felt really awkward, like it could have, it could have felt in a different movie, like this sort of thing where it's like, well, this is a conclusion we have to come to. And so it doesn't totally work, but this is, this is the ultimate goal. Um, but you really like, you feel the tension and the fear and the, uh, you know, I don't, the, the palpable danger in that, both when he pulls the, the gun and then when Gordy pulls the, or when he pulls the knife and then when Gordy pulls the gun, there's something where, you know, I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times, but I still was like sort of frozen, almost not breathing. Um, because it's, it's almost the, the opposite of that showdown between Gordy and the, the doe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, instead of the, you know, just Terrence Malicky, you know, taking in nature, it's the like, Something could go very wrong at any moment right now. I knew how it ended. I remember it from watching it. I I knew that he didn't shoot him, and I still kind of thought he was going to shoot him. Yeah. yeah. Like, I was like, did I misremember this? Because it felt really well, real. And here's another thing that I, I think is really fantastic is the way um, – so I, I apparently Chris is the kid in the, in the novella who pulls the gun, but uh, Reiner changed it to Gordy because – um, it, it kind of follows that arc of having his brother's baseball cap stolen by Sutherland's character mm-hmm. early on in the movie. And that's one of those things that um, they, I mean, thank God he doesn't like try to give you a flashback or something to remind you of that. But it's, uh, there's enough just in the information of that standoff that even if you didn't remember that that's what was going on uh, or, that, or that that had happened before, you understand that there was something there is a almost a vendetta between those two boys. And I like that um, he didn't go, give me, give me my brother's hat. Like mm-hmm. it, it was, yeah, it, yeah. it was really good that they didn't write it that way because he was getting his revenge anyway. Well, actually uh, in, in the, uh, in the featurette, Whedon had mentioned that, you know, people ask him, well, did, did you get his, did you get your hat back? Why didn't you get your hat back? Things like that. And um, he said that he asked Reiner that and Reiner's uh, response was, well, no, like Sutherland's character didn't care about it. He threw it away immediately after. Like he had zero. I mean, that's why he mm-hmm. doesn't even put it on. He gives it to Eyeball. Yeah. Eyeball puts it on. And they walk off like he had zero attachment to it, um, which is just yeah. a, a brilliant way to approach it. Yeah. And that that just shows how good Reiner is at reading the source material, reading the script, reading the, the story and understanding the characters. And it, yeah. it makes no surprise. It's no surprise to me that he. He understood that, and that's part of why the the characters feel as real as they do. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, um, do you have you got anything else that you want to touch on before we move on to the uh, the showdown? Uh, no, I, I I think I, I think I'm good. All right, folks, stick around. We will be back after the break to pit these movies against each other head to head. The Sandlot versus Stand by Me in the Civil War Showdown coming up next. America as a goddamn well, he's 
We are now in the Civil War showdown where we pit both of these movies head to head against each other in uh, a variety of categories. We've got the battle lines here. First one up, we've got quotability, which uh, for our purposes, we're calling you're killing me smalls versus two for flinching. Now, Jake, where do you gut reaction? Where do you land on this? Gut reaction is the same lot. Just just because the quotes are, I, I don't know. We I use them more, and I, yeah. I've seen Stand by Me. We've quoted Stand by Me. There's good. The script is really good in Stand by Me, but I don't know. It's hard to beat. You're killing me, Smalls. I know. It's and there's there's several. I mean, L seven weenie. There's there's several things. I mean, even as childish S'mores. as they are. Yeah, the s'mores line, like you said, there, there's so many things in, in the Sandlot that are just like, I mean, from a quotability standpoint, I think, I think the Sandlot does take, uh, stand by me, like, easy. You, you might quote stand by me, but you're going to be quoting the Sandlot forever. <laughs> exactly. Forever. Exactly. Um, no, and, and in my notes, like, I probably have more quotes from, uh, stand by me that I wrote down. But that's from a like from a prose standpoint, not from a like I want to enter this into my vernacular and and use it on a daily basis sort of thing. Um, right. I mean, you you don't get to tell somebody every day um, to to suck your fat one, but <laughs> or that it's the fattest one in four counties. In four yeah. counties, but. You can say you're killing me, Smalls, and and we did all the time. That's all we did was quote Sandlot. Yeah, but I mean, and I think so, it it comes down to with with uh, Stand by Me. It's you know it's a different sort of like I mean things like when I think it's Chris says uh, we're going to be making ashtrays in birdhouses while you're you know off taking your college classes. Um, that's a really good, really well constructed line. It's just like I'm not I don't have a place to use it in in daily life. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's good. I. The lardass thing. I I know it's not a quote, but just when the benevolent order of the antelopes are going the 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 when he's walking across the stage, it, it's. I mean, it has a lot in there mm-hmm. that's very memorable, and I don't I don't know if you want to say funny. Some of it's funny. Some of it's just great vernacular. Uh-huh. Well, even but I'm still giving my vote to yeah. To the even sandlot. probably probably my favorite quote from the Sandlot. Uh, do you, do you want to hazard a guess? Your favorite quote from the sandlot yeah i don't know you got to tell me pervin a dish when uh pervin a yeah. dish <laughs> when when oh, what his name? squints he was he was pervin dish on yeah. windy peppercorn so they were late um i just i love that and that's one that i don't think i realized until maybe you know i was a, i was a teenager watching it and that was a one that was later added added in but um I, i'll still use from time to time one from um stand by me that i think uh, needs to be added into our vernacular is that's a goocher when uh, when they all flip their coins. <laughs> that's a goocher. Yeah, when they all flip their coins and they're all uh, tails up. And apparently a goocher is a are, are you familiar with this term? Apparently it's it's a like sign of bad luck. No, I, I didn't know that. I was wondering if it was like a pickle. <laughs> no, I don't think it's like a pickle. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to add goocher in and, and start using it regularly. Oh, man, that's a goocher. They got they have an omen in the sandlot. In the sandlot, they really should have called that baseball getting broken open a goocher. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's let's move on to our to our next battle line, and this is the gang. And so uh, we've kind of got this broken down into a few um, subcategories here. Let's start with the first one: leader Benny the Jet Rodriguez versus Chris Chambers. Who do you That's- think is a better 
um, leader in, in whatever way you, you want to look at it. I, th- I think Benny's probably the better leader, but my vote's still going to go with Chris. He's so well, he's, he's so well-rounded, such an interesting character. And I mean, River Phoenix does such a fantastic job. My my mm-hmm. vote's going to go with uh, Chris Chambers. See, I, I'm I'm sort of divided. I, it's on the one hand, if it's like the guy that I want to hang out with, it's probably Benny Benjamin Franklin Franklin Rodriguez. Like he's just he's just the coolest, you know. Like um, and and the way that he's they I think they do share some similarities in um, they're both very warm, welcoming, inviting, cool dudes. Um, but I think I'm I think I'm gonna have to go with you on this as well, with Chris Chambers being just the and maybe it's because he's a more well rounded character, but um being the type of guy that you would actually like I would be drawn to Benny, but over the course of a like long childhood friendship, I think it's gonna be more you're gonna get more out of being friends with Chris Chambers. Other unless you want just tickets to the the Dodgers, then maybe hang out with Benny. Yes. And I mean, I bought the, the friendship in stand by me a little more than I bought the one in the sandlot, because even though he says Benny's his best friend ever and all this other stuff, you don't see any of those real best friend moments between smalls and Benny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's another thing is there's, you know, they spend this entire summer together in the sandlot, but they spend this entire summer together connected by the sandlot. Whereas at least, at least between Gordy and Chris, you can really sense that friendship had, has a history from before where we are and continues past uh, the story. Mm -hmm. Um, So great. Uh, Yeah. Let's give it, let's give it unanimously to Chris. Okay. Moving on. Let's go to best fat kid. So we've got (sighs) ham from the Sandlot versus Vern from sincerely from uh, uh, stand by me. Where do you go? Look, I, I grew up and the fat kid in movies was Ham. I mean, he he was in. We talked about it, he's in all the movies. Mm-hmm. But it's the vote goes to Vern. I mean, I I think I think part of that is your um, part of that's your deep deep history of Disney movies. It, yeah, he was I, he was go to default Disney fat kid. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking up real quick what he's been in. Uh, I. Did he have a career after after he hit puberty? I mean, I don't think so. But I didn't I didn't do a deep dive on his stuff, so it's uh, it's hard for me to uh, say that with any um, absolute certainty. He does still act, but uh, really often is it like is he getting parts in like SVU or something like that? Like Bones, so it is like SVU. Okay, yeah, CSI, yeah. like like one offs. Yeah, yeah, just he was on home improvement oh, for an episode. He, was, he yeah, he was the brother in the in son-in-law. Yes. I totally forgot yeah. about that. Interesting. He, he was on an episode of X-Files. It looks like he just does little bit parts now, but uh he was a voice in Spider-Man 3. Okay. So, um you went you went with Vern? I went with Vern. I'm going to like I'm not even as torn as you are. I'm I I definitely got to go Vern. Like as as good as Ham is, and I love, you know, I love when he's sitting there behind the plate just talking trash. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, but Vern, like Vern's lines sincerely are like <laughs> just line for line. Some of my favorite moments of of the movie. I mean, it's and and a lot of it is that the timing that Jerry O'Connell has as he delivers them. Um, it's that sincerity. It's it's the like there is a I, I think there's something to 
you know, we talked about the the kid that plays Ham, um, Patrick Renna, is that his name? Yes. Um, he he's sort of just playing like he it feels like that is his personality. And 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 while it is uh while it is good, it's just, you know, it, it can only go so far. Whereas like with Jerry O'Connell here, I'm not sure if that's exactly him. I imagine he probably is a bit of a soft hearted kid. Um, or was a bit of a soft-hearted kid, but you you get something beyond that that just really feels like, um, and and maybe it's the development of the characters, but that really feels uh, earned and well well constructed. You see the gears, like I said, running in the back of his head. So yeah, gotta gotta go, Vern. Vern is one of the maybe the best child characters ever in any movie. It's hard to vote against him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, bespectacled weirdo. So we've got <laughs> Squints. Uh, versus Corey Feldman, whose name I still uh, cannot recall. It's uh, Teddy uh, Duchamp. Teddy Duchamp. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm. I think I'm leaning, leaning saying a lot on this one. I like Squints. I like Squints, Squints a lot. Squints is pretty well, and yeah, I. So I'm right now. I'm undecided. I. Ooh. I want to go squints. I really want to go squints. Can I say a tie? Is that against the rules? Ties okay. That's definitely against the rules. Is it I okay? I guess. I think okay. It, because let, it's not for the whole a, category. It's for this. It's for a sub thing. I think we're still going to have a yeah. winner. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to have to go tie on this because I really, really like Feldman. Really like Feldman. But squints has probably the best lines of and the best moments of of the Sandlot. You know, forever. That and that that whole. Um, when he, you know, when he's telling the story about the, the origin of, of the beast and, and then his, you know, pursuit of Wendy Peppercorn is, uh, admirable. He has a lot of great looks. Yeah. I got, I got to give him a tie. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to the, the final subcategory here in the gang, the narrator. And really, I mean, I let, let's look at the kids. The, I guess the protagonist is probably a better way to, to put this, but the, you know, the, the, the character who is ultimately narrating the film, where do you go? Do you go, um, do we Ego get to Smalls? include the performance for the grown-ups reading the um um I I you know what I say let's let's do it and let's see how that if that weighs in either way um it, it does cuz I think Dreyfus does such a good job He does well and honestly I know I know it is um I I've forgotten his name already the director of the Sandlot who is uh uh David M Evans who is narrating it um, which there's something admirable about that, but he does have a bit of a, I don't know, a, a very stock sort of voiceover voice yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not quite, um, Daniel Stern who did, he did, uh, uh, the wonder years, right? Yes. Um, it's, you know, it's not, it's not quite as great and iconic as that. It's, it's good. It works. He says pickle very well, very often. He says it um, too much. He probably he, he, he says probably does say it too, too many much. times. Like he, it, he, if, if he, he says, sets it up and then sets it up again and then sets it up again and then sets it up again, yeah, there was just a lot of uh, in in the narration. This is the biggest thing, the best thing, the most crazy thing that. Yeah, well, well, and even even like he keeps saying, "We're going to get to the biggest pickle I've ever been in my entire life." And then they spend another twenty minutes, and then he says it again, and they spend another twenty minutes. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think from a from a narrator standpoint, uh we're we're in lockstep again. Uh, definitely Dreyfus. Dreyfus just brings and he's a you know, he's a guy that sometimes I really love and sometimes he gets on my nerves, but he's perfect 
perfect, perfect, perfect for this. Okay, so what about Will Whedon as uh, Gordy versus whoever the kid is that plays Smalls? I think you answered it by saying whoever the kid is who plays Smalls. I, I mean, yeah. Will Whedon did a, did a great job. He, he did yeah. great. All those kids were great. Whoever cast that movie go, get, needs to go in the casting Hall of Fame. I mean, top to bottom, it's – it's great. Definitely. I mean, especially with a cast of, I mean, but both of these, like with a cast, an ensemble cast of kids, that's a big risk. And I think both do a pretty good job with, with the kids they have. Um, but yeah, I, I think the thing with, um, Smalls in the Sandlot is that he's more of the avatar for the audience a little bit. So, um, he's, he's an entry point, but he's not a strong character, whereas there's a lot going on with Gordy and, Whedon pulls it off beautifully. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 100% stand by me. I think they I think stand by me wins this one. Wins yeah, I was going to say looking looking through this tally, uh we we both go on gang stand by me pretty much across the board with the exception of bespe- bespectacled weirdo that gets one and a <laughs> half for the sandlot. So, the gang wins there. So, we've got two for the gang or I'm sorry, two for stand by me, uh two for the sandlot. So, we're tied up here. So, let's move on to our next category. Uh, childhood tobacco use, which uh, we didn't really talk about much in, uh, or may, I don't, I don't think we really talked about it at all in the reviews, but um, very prominent in Stand by Me, and then prominent in one very, uh, very nice set piece in uh, the Sandlot. So where do you where do you go on this? How do you weigh it out? <laughs> so I, I I like that how realistic. It seems for the kids to be trying to smoke and all that stuff in in the Sandlot. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even draw attention to it. It just no. it's just what they do. It's and it's it's not it's not even done in like a judgmental way or trying to teach kids a, nothing. It's mm-hmm. just these well, kids did, smoke. Did you notice that? So the younger kids smoke. The older kids are always smoking and always drinking. Yeah, in they've, the car and everything. Yeah, they've always got that rainier beer. With them, especially in the car when they're when they're playing mailbox baseball or when they're driving out to to find the body, um, uh, which is just like a you know, and that that feels you know very Stephen King, you yeah. know, it's it's these more you know grown up kids sort of a thing. Um, but then when you do the when you do your beer recommendation later, are you going to pick something that pairs well with playing chicken with a log truck? <laughs> Sobriety plays pairs very well. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. sobriety. Yeah, yeah. Truck. That's yeah. War starts at midnight. Does not endorse. <laughs> no, certainly not. Um, but then you've got stand, or then you've got the Sandlot, which is on the other end of the spectrum. Whereas you know, Stand by Me feels there's verisimilitude in in the you know these kids smoking. It just feels like something that they did at the time. Um, the Sandlot is more like the, oh, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. And then once again, from the vantage point of a kid, you know, it's, it's this ridiculous barfing scene. I actually, one thing that I had considered that the, um, category for this, uh, the battle lines was actually best barfs. Um, but I think Lord ass would win that hands down. Yeah. Well, um, uh, maybe it's all years but, of listening to Doug loves movies, but I was watching the Sandlot and I was like, <laughs> not for a metaphobes. And then I watched Stand By Me. I was like, not for emetophobes. Man, some serious puking scenes in, the, in these movies. I'm, I'm, look, I'm going with, I'm going with the Sandlot. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, I'm going to have to go with, I'm, I'm going to, I'm with you again. I got to, got to go with the Sandlot too, because it's just the way that it's, uh, you know, and part of it's the, I don't think this would even be a category without the Sandlot. Right. You know? 
Um, it, it, it's a great set piece. And it's it's really good. It's hilarious. Yeah, the, the big chief, big chief chewing tobacco. The fact that we didn't really touch on this, the, the kid who brings the big chief chewing, chewing tobacco, I love that A, in, in the end, um, they say he got really into the 60s and was never seen again. <laughs> um, and then I texted you as I was watching it, and it was actually as that scene came up. I think that that character, they, they never saw him again, but he actually became like a domestic terrorist. <laughs> He, he something, something seemed off about his character. That's yeah. That's like sure. he, Mark Maron talks a lot about, or not a lot, but from time to time he'll talk about the the evil hippie. If if he got really into the sixties, he became an evil hippie who was like slipping people like fake LSD or laced LSD or something like that. Um, I, I I got a bad feeling about that kid. Um, okay, so so now we've actually Sandlot Sandlot has taken over. We've got uh, four for Sandlot. Two for the gang. Let's move on to the next uh, next category, soundtrack. Now, um, I, I tried to come up with a what is what do you think is the ultimate or in your mind what's the ultimate soundtrack song from each of these? If you can, Chris, this is such a hard question because one of the the cassette tapes I grew up with was the Stand by Me soundtrack. Oh, really? I, I, yeah, I can skip to the end and tell you it's getting my vote because top okay. to bottom, it is great. And every single time one of the songs came on, I only remember it from listening to it on that tape mm-hmm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's it's great. It's it's perfect. Now, there are some good songs. There are some some fine songs in the Sandlot. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and there are. I mean, there's the, the In the Jungle and there's there's several things, but they kind of they're just sort of like checkpoints and they don't they don't seem to be integrated as much into the story itself it they're more um, of set dressing almost whereas i feel like the soundtrack in stand by me is part of the movie mm-hmm. it, yeah no it, that that's a good way that's a good way to look at it because they in in the sandlot a lot of times they are just saying like oh look this is a movie set in the 60s um whereas in stand by me it feels like um there's there's a really great moment when it goes from the older kids uh giving each other like razor blade tattoos, which just looks terrible when guys getting Cobra, um, chopped into his, chopped into his arm. And then, uh, and then, and then a, a Cobra and they're listening to the radio. And I think on the radio, they're talking about the missing, missing boy. And then there's this great and longtime listeners of the show will know that I am a huge sucker for, um, sort of a play with diegetic and non-diegetic sound. And so it goes from goes from that to, you know, now on now on to our next song. And then it cuts to the younger boys in the woods and uh, Lollipop is playing. And yes. they are um, it's essentially become non-diegetic sound, but they're singing along to the song. And it's I think it's Vern and uh, Feldman's character. And they're singing along to the song and popping their their mouths. And it's just it's uh it's it's great. You never have that much interaction. You never have that much that really feels like it's a part of of the Sandlot. Yeah, because um, I don't I don't think they had like a transistor radio or anything out there with them. So it it was more right. like they felt like they were listening to the song. So well, we got they, to hear I, the song. What is what's the uh, what's the song that they were constantly singing? It was a theme song. The Palad the Paladin theme song. Have gun will travel. Yeah, is yeah. the Heart of a man. Yeah, yeah. It was just like that was the way that they were they were entertaining themselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you again. And one other thing, something that I really appreciated about this was, um, so the score of this, uh, you know, along with the soundtrack, the score, you have these sort of mellow, um, scored moments with 
that are ostensibly like a scored version of stand by me, mm-hmm. the song. Um, but they're, they're very unintrusive and then you don't get the song until the credits. And I think that's a pretty classy way to go about doing it. And the song hits really, really well. It, it at, feels earned. Oh, it, feels it feels earned, earned. at that point. It's, yeah. And you're, and just the last shot of the movie out that window while you're still trying to process what Dreyfus just wrote on the, on the screen mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. the song plays, it just hits it, it. It's, it's a combo punch. That's really good. Well, I, I will say I was trying to process what he wrote on the screen and then how much his house must be worth to have those custom, <laughs> uh, those custom doors in there. Um, he's, I think he's doing pretty well for himself. Um, one, one other thing before we move on that I, I would like to mention, um, I'm going to put this in the link, a link in the show notes, but, uh, they made a music video for, um, for stand by me with, uh, what's his name? Benny, Benny King, Benny, Benny King, um, with, with him in the eighties. So like, you know, many decades later with him and river Phoenix and Will Whedon, and it's a really weird thing. I don't know exactly why it exists. Um, and, and they also made it like they had to have made it to tie in with, you know, he's singing, singing stand by me or singing along to stand by me. Um, and, and rivers Phoenix river Phoenix is playing a guitar at, at one point. Um, but they're like, it's that thing where the kids have, you know, they're growing so quickly that they don't even look like the kids from the movie anymore. And it's very odd. I'll just, just go watch it. I'll, I'll, it'll be in the show notes. Um, it's, I, I don't even know how to describe it. it. It's like three minutes of your time. It's worth, it's worth, it's the worth WTF. it. It's worth yeah. it. Chris made me watch it and it's worth it. Okay. So let's recap real quick. We've got, let's see, are we tied up? Yeah, we're, we're, we're tied up at four and four right now. So this is either going to be maybe the tiebreaker, maybe the thing that, uh, um, that ties it up even further. This is a lot closer than I expected. It is. And uh, I'm I'm very, very happy with that. But uh, our final battle line is uh, the tallest tale. Now, this is going to be Squint's uh, story of uh, the origin of the beast, which, you know, is where we get forever and such. And uh, Gordy's story of Lardass's revenge. And so, I mean, I think forever is probably the iconic line the most iconic line of um of the sandlot and but then i mean you i think people who haven't even seen stand by me things they know is that fat jerry o'connell is in it and there's a scene with a guy with a pie eating contest so uh this is this this is gonna be tough where do you land well lardass's revenge it it needed a better ending (laughs) i I mean it just ended it it really needed well played really needed a better ending um, yeah, I mean, what, what happened after what, what happened with Lardass? <laughs> I, I, I think it's Lardass's revenge. That's, it's gotta be, it's gotta look, the mm-hmm. beast origin is great. It is really good. And it is one of the things that we quote all the time, but Lardass's revenge is, is fantastic. The, the beast origin is a perfect example of how to do a kid's movie, right? I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, kids movie or family movie, right? It's, it's good. It's really good. And I love the, um, sort of, and I, I think Ebert even, uh, makes mention of its sort of similarity to, uh, a Christmas story in, in his review. It has that sort of, you know, when the bandits come in and in, in a Christmas story and, um, he's, he's imagining in his head fighting them off with his red rider BB gun. It has that sort of feeling to it. 
Um, it's great. It's executed well. But yeah, Lord Ass's Revenge is just next level stuff, like narratively and in execution, everything. Yeah, um, it's I and, yeah. and I would just say the stylistic change for that is better than the black and white grainy stylistic change for the beast. It, it, it yeah. It's it's a unanimous for me. Lord Ass's Revenge. Yeah, I totally, totally 100 percent agree. OK, and so that's. Um, I mean, looking at the looking at the tally here, that means that Stand by Me uh, comes out as the winner. Do you have any objection to this? Or are we ready to declare it uh, the ultimate coming of age boyhood summer movie? Uh, uh, out of these two, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll say it, it definitely yeah. should out of win. The, out of these two. Okay, mm-hmm. maybe maybe we'll yeah maybe we'll bracket it and and keep keep going down the line at some point. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. And this is really honestly going into this. I thought it was going to be stand, the Sandlot running away with it. Really? Um, just because of, you know, it's standing in my mind. And here's the thing on, on the last civil war, when we did ET versus jaws, um, Hunter kind of concluded by saying he thinks ET is the better movie, but he would rather watch if, if you were like right now, which would you rather watch? Um, he'd rather watch jaws. And mm-hmm. I think before this, I would have said the same. I would have said, uh, "Stand by Me" is probably a better movie, but I would rather watch The Sandlot right now. I think it's uh, "Stand by Me" for both. Honestly, this this movie is under ninety minutes. It's great, and it's so good that I don't know what kind of reception it got. But if I were uh, Rob Reiner, I would wake up every day and wonder why people don't love this movie more. <laughs> like, why is why is this not listed as one of the best five films of the eighties? Yeah, it's well, and it's so unassumingly good. Like, that's the thing is, it doesn't it doesn't try to be flashy or try to be. It's just it's just a well made movie. Um, it it's it might be the best movie about kids. Oh, those those are strong words. I mean, I think you could probably ET would probably could probably enter into this, um, but. Yeah, it's it's certainly up there. It's certainly in the conversation. Absolutely. And I, I think one caveat that we didn't really talk about, but I, I alluded to a little bit. I mean, obviously, these are boyhood stories. There is, um, you know, you, you play like a girl and things like that. Like, obviously, these are missing any feminine perspective. Totally understand I don't th- that. I don't but- think a woman speaks in, uh, in Stand By Me. I think the mom doesn't say anything when she's gardening. And I don't think a woman speaks. I don't know if that's true, but I can't argue with you that that might be. No, no, that 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 uh, the father waitress comes out and yells at him when he mm, shoots the trash can. Mm, mm-hmm. But that that's a, like there's there's th- these don't pass any three of the Bechdel test. No, 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 not at all. And I mean, that and that's a, you know, but I, I think it's fine. You know, these these are, you know, working for a specific vision of you know, a boyhood adolescence. And so, and, and, and it even addresses it in the script to some extent when it says, um, these were the questions that were important before we, uh, started talking about girls uh-huh. before exactly. we, yeah, this is about young boys world. And I think, I think that's an acceptable thing to make a movie about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So it looks like stand by me has it. So when uh, our viewers decide to sit down and, and watch our champion, what is the right beer to pair with the movie? Chris, Oh, well, I'm, uh, I'm very glad you asked, Jake. Uh, so as regular listeners know, we've been in the summer of IPAs and we're, it's coming to a close. Um, but I've got a beer here that I think if you are an IPA fan is going to be a real, real nice way to close out, uh, the summer of IPAs. If you're not an IPA fan, this is probably not the beer that you should start with, 
because it'll scare you away. Uh, I think, but, uh, this is the, so I, I've actually got one here in my hand. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, open it for you. Hear that nice little, nice little pop. Um, so this beer is puff from six point brewery. And I think, uh, I don't, I should have looked, I don't know where, but earlier in the, it may have actually been the first or second, uh, choice from, uh, in, in the summer of IPAs, I had, uh, recommended the high res, which is a triple IPA from six point brewery. Um, this puff is a sort of a cousin to that, I guess the high res is, um, the triple version of the double IPA from six point called resin and puff is resin that is unfiltered and then dry hopped. So this is clocking in at 108 IBU. So once again, on that scale of bitterness way up there, uh, those dry hops that I, I mentioned, they're going to give it, they give it a nice, like citrusy fruity flavor to it. So a nice, a nice floral bouquet. Um, and it is a, like, it'll knock you on your ass. Like it's, it's strong and hoppy and bitter, but it is so, so good. Um, and I don't think there's anything I actually, I actually, when I was watching stand by me last night, had, had a puff and was sort of hoping that, uh, that stand by me would win because I think this works, you know, it pairing with the, uh, the kids constantly smoking and, uh, and, and having cigarettes and smoking their Winston's after, after dinner. Um, so yeah, next time you watch stand by me, enjoy a puff from six point brewery in Brooklyn. All right. So the Sandlot and stand by me are currently available to rent on iTunes, Google play and Amazon. And now that the dust has settled and the debate is over, we want to hear from you. Tell us what we got right and what we got wrong at hello at war starts at midnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. All right, Jake, it is really rad recommendation time. We've spent a lot of time talking about uh, boyhood, growing up, adolescence, summertime. Um, Do you have anything to recommend that falls into any of these categories? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to recommend Joe Dirt. No, I'm kidding. Uh, My recommendation for this. uh, That's the second Joe Dirt reference in a a row on the show. (laughs) uh, I think I referenced it last time I was on the show, too. Well, Joey referenced it uh, with uh, the guy that plays Slipknot in uh, Suicide Squad was the uh, Indian who sells the fireworks in Joe Dirt. <laughs> Kick and wing? Yes, exactly. I, I know my Joe Dirt. You're not gonna st- you're not gonna stump me on that one. <laughs> so, so my recommendation is another uh, movie 
that um that's good is, that's a good start I, I, that's what i wanted to go with with a narrator uh-huh. coming of age movie uh about a group of guys and this one is set in tulsa oklahoma so i thought oh, it was appropriate look at, look at that i'm gonna go with the outsiders uh based on the novel by se hinton tulsa native se hinton mm-hmm. uh this is francis ford coppola's movie that is set in the 60s i believe between two rival gangs the uh greasers and the socias is it the 60s i, I feel like it's the 50s is it the 50s I'm, i think so. uh, it probably is the 50s that actually sounds right but it is it is also a movie with a, a dynamite cast, great coming of age, and I thought it was universally loved. I almost didn't recommend it because I thought it was something that everybody has seen and everybody's liked. It it only has a sixty something on Rotten Tomatoes and a and a seven point two on IMDb. This is one that I've seen twenty thirty times growing up and thought mm-hmm. it was like something everybody has seen. It's another well, I, one. That, I feel like it was shown in every English class in like middle school too. It it had to be right. I, yeah. I, I mean, oh, quick, quick update. Um, you were correct. It's actually in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1965 uh, is the wow. uh, first first few words of the plot on Wikipedia. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, but uh, if, if you want quotability, you have it. And if you want just great character names, you just have to watch uh, Pony yeah. Boy Curtis and Soda Pop Curtis, uh, <laughs> Two Bit Matthews, Cherry Valance. It's great. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'm, you're not getting any argument with, from me here. Um, actually they just had an outsiders event at, uh, the circle cinema, which is actually featured in, uh, in the film. Uh, maybe it was probably like two or three weeks ago now. I think oh, C. Wow. Thomas Howell came out and they, they made, uh, uh, they actually had shirts printed up that said stay golden or stay gold. Stay gold. Uh, yeah, yeah. Man. Uh, they, they look pretty cool. I did not get my hands on one. I, I would really, really like one of those shirts. It, it is one of my favorite books and and favorite movies. And after living in Tulsa, it is really neat to watch and go, oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, that's that's the uh, drive-in where I saw Dangerous Men. Uh-huh. That's the drive-in where we saw Dangerous Men, and then it burned down, and then they built it back up. <laughs> yes. It, I think that's exactly the order of events went. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, that's that's a great recommendation. And I'm, I'm not sure mine's going to be able to compete with The Outsiders, but I'm going to try. Mine's, I'm going to go, I guess I'm going to take the Hunter approach and go the more esoteric, lesser known uh, film here. Um, this, my recommendation this week is Barry Levinson's 1999 film, um, set in Baltimore in the mid fifties, uh, it's called Liberty Heights. I feel like this movie hasn't been like, I feel like this is a criminally underseen film. Uh, it stars Adrian Brody and Ben Foster, Ben Foster being our narrator here. It's, uh, sort of a, another coming of age film, um, you know, set in the, the nuclear age, um, about, uh, these kids growing up in Baltimore. I mean, if you've seen anything by Barry Levinson, like Diner, um, it, it's sort of got that feel to it a little bit, a, a sort of like spiritual sequel to Diner. And, you know, it's a, it's about this kid uh, who's in this this kind of Jewish family in Baltimore in in the middle of the 50s as things are sort of changing and in flux. And it's about a lot of, you know, it's about Jewish identity. It's about um, growing into adulthood and um, growing out of adolescence and and that sort of thing, a beautiful, wonderfully made, you know, it's a little film, um, which might be why, I mean, when I looked at, looked it up in Rotten Tomato, or I'm sorry, when I looked it up on Letterboxd, I think there were only like 300 and some odd people who had like logged it, which kind of blows my mind. And there's, there's a ton of people in this, in this film as well. They're more, more like 
kind of that guys that that you'll recognize. But you know, Joe Montana is in this. Um, look, look up the cast, and there, there, there's going to be a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of faces. You're like, oh yeah, the guy that played the elf in the in uh, the Santa Claus, or you know, things like that. Um, uh, can, Gorg- can, can can I ask you? Is it possible for you to ever talk about Joe Montana without thinking of the Water Boy, where he, where he says? <laughs> I didn't say Joe Montana. I said Joe Montana. <laughs> I, I it is because I was not aware of that that line. I I know I, a few I, lines from the Water Boy, but I, I am apparently that is that in your like Joe Dirt uh, Water yes. Boy double oh, feature yes. repertoire. <laughs> well, yeah, if you haven't, my recommendations this week are Joe Dirt and the Water Boy because I have only seen movies that have shown on Comedy Central. <laughs> okay, but uh yeah, Liberty Heights criminally underseen. Um Anthony Anderson's also in this movie. Um uh Orlando Jones, a lot of a lot of great just sort of like, "Oh yeah, I like that. I like that person." Beautifully, beautifully shot by Christopher Doyle who is one car wise, um go-to DP. Um and uh it's, it's seek it out. I mean, it's it's available to rent on all the normal places, Google Play, iTunes, etc. And uh, in the credits, there is a credit to the Halloween stripper. So there's that to look forward to, too. I uh, I was actually surprised you didn't recommend George Washington. <laughs> Sonia, put down. Quit, quit touching that doo doo girl. <laughs> well, George, I mean, George it, Washington, for, it, for those who don't know, uh, David Gordon Green was probably most known for his like stoner comedies at this point. Pineapple Express, uh, et cetera. The Sitter, um, uh, Your Highness started out doing these very small, intimate intimate little movies about, you know, being, uh, growing up in the South and, uh, George Washington, definitely worth a, worth a watch a good, that's, that's a good ulterior, uh, recommendation, Jake. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. It's, it spiritually feels a little like stand by me and, uh, it's, it's available on criterion collection as well. Uh, yeah. Look for George Washington as well. That's a really good, uh, really good recommendation. And, uh, that's going to be a wrap for another episode of war starts at midnight. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who's just hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or, if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. And shout out to Ruben's Accomplice for the tunes on this week's show. Find out more at rubensaccomplice.com. Join us in another fortnight for a brand new episode of The Carpenter Shop, our spin-off podcast dedicated to John Carpenter. We'll be discussing the Master of Horror's quirky student film turned debut feature, Dark Star. You can catch it streaming now on Fandor and Shudder. Thanks for listening, folks. Chopper, sick balls. I do think it's really funny that I nailed that one. <laughs> I thought you just knew. No, in no way did I know that, Chris. That he... I, how would <laughs> I know who directed amazing. the Beethoven sequels? I, 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 leg- I legitimately, legitimately meant there's no way he did. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh That's absolutely amazing. Um, if you are like art films and Hunter's old movies, apparently I'm like the Disney Channel original picture expert like whatever that genre is (laughs) shitty 90 kids movie